It's easy to talk about the easy stuff. Work. Sports. But sometimes, we need to talk about the hard stuff. The difficult questions that linger in our minds, but we're afraid to ask. Is there truly a way to know right from wrong? Do advances in science undermine the authority of the Bible? Does God have anything to say about my depression? Does God hate me because I'm gay? Because I'm transgender? Is it just lights out when we die? Or is there something more? For too long, the church has avoided difficult conversations. Because, well, they're difficult. We're ready to change that. The afterlife, mental health, evolution, sexuality. This is a conversation about what God really has to say about these topics. Buckle up. This might get awkward. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, one in... Hi, babe. Come here. Come here. Come here, babe. Do you got to go to your class? Okay. Did you want to get a hug before you went? Okay. I love you. Can I have a kiss? Okay. Can you go to your class? Okay. See ya. You want to say bye-bye to everyone? I hope just by that interaction, it is painfully clear that she is more important than you. <laughs> Let's just start again, shall we? One in five Canadians will struggle with a mental illness over the course of their lifetime. I'm not making that statistic up. That's according to the Canadian Mental Health Association. One in five, that's 20%. So let's just apply the math, shall we? According to recent, sir, or recent census, there are 36 million people that live in Canada. That means 7.2 million. 7.2 million will struggle with a mental illness over the course of their lifetime. And it could be any number of mental illnesses. According, again, to the Canadian Mental Health Association, there are over 300 different diagnosable mental illnesses. And 7.2 million people in Canada will experience one in their lifetime. The more staggering statistic for me is that half of those people, 3.6 million, will never get the kind of treatment that they need. That's 3.6 million people that are struggling with anxiety, that are struggling with depression, that are struggling with self-harm, that are struggling with some type of eating disorder or substance abuse issue or whatever it is. And they don't know why and they don't know how to get out of it and there's no hope for them and they're sleeping 20 hours a day and they're in a dark pit and they can't get out and there is no hope for them. At least they feel that way. I want to apply it now to our attendance here at Bayview Glen. Any given Sunday, we would have between five and 600 people in a corporate worship service together. Let's call it 500 because that makes the math easier for this pastor. <laughs> About 20%, 100 folks in this room will struggle with a mental illness some point in their lifetime. And 50, 50 individuals, 50 brothers, 50 sisters, 50 husbands, wives, 50 moms, dads, best friends, co-workers, 50 will go without the treatment that they need. 
Here is my hope today that the 450 others of you will listen and learn. But for 50, today would be a catalyst for healing. I'm not going to blow smoke up your kilt here and tell you we can fix it today. But today might be the first step in a long journey towards wholeness and healing. And let me assure you that wholeness and healing is available. I can tell you that from Scripture. The prophet Hosea wrote this. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a valley of hope. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel who was in a time of despair. And he says, I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope, which probably wouldn't mean anything to you unless you knew what the word Accor means. This word literally means trouble. God says, I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And anytime you come across a valley in the scripture, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's a difficult thing. Despair, depression, hopelessness. And he says, I will make that valley a door of hope. And I'm here to tell you today that God can turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope. God promises in the book of Hosea but he's also made it happen in my life. When I was about 20 years old, I uh, began to s- struggle with some symptoms. I would find out later they were symptoms of uh, clinical depression, diagnosable depressive disorder. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I started sleeping for about 20 hours a day. I didn't know why. I lost 50 pounds in a really short period of time. I didn't know why. Uh, I lacked energy. I didn't know why. And my parents finally came to me. Actually, I remember exactly where we lived at the time and what I was doing. I remember it like it was yesterday. And my parents came in and, and essentially, in not so many words, said this. Uh, something's going on with you, and you're not any fun to be around. So you need to get that fixed somehow. And they, said, they were a lot nicer than that. They're very, very gracious people. And they just said, go talk to your pastor. Go talk to somebody. And I did. I began to talk to people about what was going on and how I was feeling. And eventually I went to a doctor. And the doctor, I still remember his name. It's been almost 20 years ago now. Uh, the doctor started to ask me a series of questions. And they did some blood tests. And they said, you know, your blood test came back clean. You don't have anemia or any other things, that, you know, mono or whatever, that, that might be, you know, be able to kind of attribute these symptoms to. Uh, but have you ever heard of clinical depression? And I said, no, I, I've never heard of clinical depression. I, I thought just when you were depressed, that's, you're just sad. And he said, yeah, that, that is true. But then there's this other thing called clinical depression. It's a mental illness that something happens in your body physiologically, happens in your brain with the chemicals. And we know a little bit about it, but not a lot about it. We know more now than we did 20 years ago. And he said, uh, let me ask you a series of questions. And he began to ask me a series of questions. And he said, it's almost uh, you know, crystal clear to me that you need some treatment for clinical depression. He got me on medication. Uh, he got me in to see a therapist. And, and I began to change some things about my life. And I watched God 20 years ago turn that valley of trouble into a door of hope. And bring healing and wholeness. And sometimes it's easy to tell stories about 20 years ago um, uh, because eventually I, you know, weaned off of, uh, with the help of my family doctor, weaned off of medication and started to engage in a lifestyle that was more kind of maintenance mode and was able to identify triggers and things. And I was doing great until about four years ago, about a year into pastoring you people. So I blame you. <laughs> and I began to experience some of those 
symptoms again, an inability to concentrate, uh, joy kind of being sucked out of things from my life. I went to my family doctor, who's a believer, a good friend now, and I said, hey, uh, what do you think? And I told her about my history with depression. She said, here's the deal. Typically, we would take blood, do all those tests again, and then eventually prescribe you medications. I'm going to prescribe you medication now because it's very clear what you're going through. And, and we're going to do the blood tests and all that stuff. So here I am again, dealing with clinical depression, dealing with days of joylessness and hopelessness, dealing with anxiety, and I don't know where it comes from. I'm dealing with all those things right now. So I can tell you not just from a biblical perspective, but from a personal perspective, God can turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope. I'm watching him do it right now. What I want to do is share uh, with some of you in the room, again, with some that may be suffering in silence and some that um, may be uh, suffering and you've talked about it and you're engaged in kind of a treatment program. I want to share with you some things for me that were really critical and, and some, some encouragement from the scripture that might help you on a healing journey. And for the rest of you, my hope is that you would begin to understand mental illness and clinical depression and clinical anxiety and other things in a new way today so that you don't say stupid stuff to your friends, okay? Why don't you just be happy? They can't. It's like if you have a broken arm, why don't you just, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo and heal it? Like that doesn't work that way. That's not how clinical depression works. That's not how mental illness works. So hopefully you'd be able to encourage them and have very good things to say and know ways in which you can engage with them on the healing journey. And so for those of you in this place that would say, I think maybe I'm struggling with something, the first thing you have to do is own it. You absolutely have to own it. And I'm not saying this, this is my own sin, this is my own failure, this, and I'm going to own the consequences of my sin and behavior and failure. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sometimes when we go through struggles, trials, difficulties, tribulations, we've got to put our finger on it and say, I'm struggling with something. You know what I mean? Because until we put our finger on it and say, I'm struggling with something, we ain't going to go anywhere. <laughs> We're just going to be spinning our wheels. See, this is what Paul is talking about when he writes to the church in Corinth. He talks about this thorn that was given to him in his flesh. And now, because of the original language there, we know that's not necessarily a sin of Paul's. It may have been a temptation, but it wasn't necessarily a sin. It might have been, we don't know exactly what it was because he doesn't tell us, but it might have been, or scholars have postulated, it might have been um, a hunchback that Paul had because he spent so much of his time and his life in a very, very small prison cell. Might have been that. It might have been the fact that, that he couldn't see very well. We know from the end of Galatians that he couldn't see very well. Some have postulated that it might have been his sexuality, actually, that he was really struggling with. And some have actually suggested that it might have even been mental illness. It was a thorn in the flesh, something that was difficult, a weakness for him, a trial for him. And he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, say that word with me, Weakness, weakness. And Paul says, therefore, for these reasons, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. We don't do that very well, do we? Oh my gosh, you guys, you know all the ways that I fail, isn't it? Let, I want to call all my friends together and tell them about all my failures. Like no one does that, but Paul does. Paul does. He boasts in his weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am, say that word with me. So you got to own it. 
you got to own it. And the trouble with mental illness is that most of us don't want to own it. We don't want to. I had a friend share a graph with me this week, and I think it's a fantastic graph. Look up here on the screen. Let's say that the x-axis represents your need for some kind of treatment plan. I'm not saying just medication, although that might be a part of it. I'm saying a more holistic, comprehensive treatment plan, okay? And way over here, you don't need any treatment at all. And way over here, you need a lot of treatment. And I'm not talk, just talking about mental illness. I'm just talking about anything that might come your way, okay? And the y-axis represents patient compliance. That is how willing you are to engage in a treatment plan or how willing you are to see a doctor. So if you don't need any treatment, but you want to see doctors all the time, high patient compliance, that's called imagined illness. You know what I mean? Like, that's hypochondria, which is also a mental illness, by the way, okay? So that's in there, but it's like, hey, I don't really need any treatment, but I'm going to see doctors all the time. That's just imagined. If you don't need any treatment and, and, you, and you're not going to see doctors all the time, that's probably because you're healthy, right? You don't need any treatment. Don't go see doctors. You're a healthy person. If you need a lot of treatment and you're willing to go see a doctor or engage in a treatment plan immediately, it means something about you is busted probably, right? Like you got a broken back, you need treatment, and you go to the doctor. I'll tell you one quick story about, this really doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, about, uh, about just about 10 days ago, I was living in this quadrant right here because I was at the gym with uh, my friend Andy Cherry who plays the music up here, right? And uh, we're going through this workout. And one of the things you do in the workout is called a medicine ball slam. Now, if you don't know what a medicine ball slam is, you take a ball, about 15-pound, big medicine ball this way, and you raise it up above your head like this and you throw it at the ground as hard as you can. It's for your core and it's for cardio and all that stuff. There are two different types of medicine balls. One that's filled with sand. So if you throw it down at the ground, plop! Just stays there. The other one's made of rubber. So if you throw it down at the ground, plop, it comes back up very quickly and hits you directly in the face. <laughs> and I'm not speaking hypothetically here. That's what happened. And I bit my top teeth, went through my bottom lip, all the way out the other side. You can come ask me to see the scar afterwards if you want, right? I went into the clinic there on what Andy, he said, first thing he said out of his mouth was, should I drive you to the hospital? You seem a little concussed. Um, I said, first of all, that's not a word, and no. You know, then he goes, should I call Amy? And I said, oh, God, no. No, do not, do not under any circumstances tell my wife what has happened. So then I get to the, uh, the clinic, the, the, and I pull the, the towel off my face, and the nurse, I kid you not, goes, oh, that looks bad. I'm like highly professional environment here at the, the old clinic on Woodbine. So they stitched me up, all right? So that, that's beside the point. I hit myself in the face with the medicine balls, the moral of the story. See, high need for treatment, right? I needed five stitches on the inside, five on the outside, and high level of compliance. Unfortunately, when you need a lot of treatment and you're not really interested in getting it, that's kind of me too when it comes to mental health stuff. It's kind of me. Like, and you're, you, there's people in this room, you're struggling with some kind of a mental illness. You're struggling with major depressive disorder, bipolar, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, clinical anxiety, any number of things. And you think, well, I just worry a lot. Nope, you're diagnosable. Or I just, I just feel kind of sad and lethargic and I'm losing energy and that, that's just kind of, but I'm not willing to engage in a treatment plan. No, 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 no. Treatment would help you. Treatment would really help you. And I want to convince some of you that are over here like me that think it's just normal to say, you know what, I would never kill myself. But if I did, 
How would I do it? See, that's not normal. There's a high need for treatment and low compliance. I want to help some of you move into this quadrant up here where you say, you know what, I'm busted. And I need some help. But you got to start this way. you got to own it. you got to begin to boast in your weaknesses, name it, put your finger on it, and say, you know what, this is not God punishing me. This is not the consequences of my sin. But, but I, I, today's going to be a catalyst towards healing and wholeness for me. Second thing I want to tell you is you're not alone. You're not alone. The very first thing one of my therapists told me is you, there's three people that you can't let into your head. Mr. Nobody likes me, Mr. Nobody cares, and Mr. Nobody understands. I want you to know if you're struggling with mental illness, whatever that mental illness is, that somebody understands. Not just somebody, lots of somebodies. The author of the book of Psalms understands. This was a worship song, Psalm 88, worship song written for the nation of Israel. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you, incline my ear to your cry. So far, so good. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for hell. Could you imagine if Andy Cherry was up here one someone, hey guys, I wrote a song this week. My life draws near to death and it's close to hell. Did everybody put your hands together? Like that's the worst worship song ever, right? But this author of the Psalms is being very, very honest. says, my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. If you know anything about clinical depression, this is just symptoms is all it is. Like one who set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, sense of abandonment, for they are cut off from your hand. Keep going. You have put me in the depths of the pit in regions dark and deep. I talked to a friend this week, struggles with clinical depression, has for a number of years. This is exactly how she described her experience, like being at the bottom of the well, trying to claw her way out, seeing just a little bit of light and then falling back down to the ground. Exactly how she described her experience. Uh, The author of the psalm says, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves, Selah, which just means pause. And after reading this, you need to pause, don't you? It's like, man, that's heavy. The author of the Psalms understands what you're going through. You're not alone. Christ himself was a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I love how Isaiah says that right there, don't you? He wasn't just a man who grieved. He was a man who, it was like his, like, who are your best friends? Well, sadness. Sadness is my best friend. Spend the most time with grief. That's what Jesus would say. Jesus understands. He even told his disciples that my soul is sorrowful even to death. See, Jesus understands. You're not alone. The great reformer, Martin Luther, wrote this about his own experience. He said, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My body was in pain and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Martin Luther struggled deeply with a dark night of the soul. Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, one of the heroes of the faith in the First Great Awakening, wrote this. He says, knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means... I know by experience what that means. Being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon. 
I should talk about this a little bit. He keeps going. That younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they become for a, a season possessed by melancholy. In other words, if you're struggling with this, Spurgeon would say, this is not strange. This is not weird. This is not odd. In fact, it's quite normal. You are not alone. And that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. Mother Teresa struggled with her own darkness and depression. She wrote this, surrounds me on all sides. I can't lift my soul to God. No light or inspiration enters my soul. Heaven, what emptiness. Not a single thought of heaven enters my mind, for there is no hope. The place for God in my soul is blank. If you're struggling with a mental illness, you are not alone. Now, church, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous here in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to do something very courageous. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul writes to us and he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Come alongside others who are struggling, in this case with mental illness. Get your shoulders under that yoke with them and bear up that burden. And there are people in the room that are suffering in silence and they need to know that they are not alone. And I can talk about Jesus and the author of the Psalms and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and Mother Teresa, but until they see someone down the aisle from them stand up and say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. So here in a few moments, I'm going to ask those of you in the room who have struggled with a clinical illness over the course of your life, a mental illness over the course of your life, I'm going to ask you to stand. You're only going to stand for three seconds and you're going to sit right back down. For some of you, you struggled with a mental illness that would prevent you from standing, something like social anxiety. We understand. It's okay. You don't have to stand. For some of you, you're not ready to stand. It causes some trepidation. You're not quite ready to do that. That's okay. You don't have to stand. All I'm saying is for those of you who have struggled with a mental illness, there's someone else in this room that's suffering in silence, and they need to know that they're not alone, so we're going to bear their burdens with them. And I want you to know that when I count to three, picture me standing with you because I'm right there with you. If you've struggled with a mental illness over the course of your life at some point, stand on three. One, two, three. Go. One, two, three. You can sit down. For those of you who are suffering in silence, look at me. Look at my face. You're not alone. If it makes you less of a Christian, then Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, and Charles Spurgeon, and Christ himself were all less of a Christian. That doesn't compute. There are people on your row that understand. More people than just one or two in this room that know what you're going through. You need to know today that there is hope and God can turn a valley of sorrow, a valley of pain, a valley of trouble into a door of hope because you are not alone. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Mental illness is illness. We know this from science, we know this from discovery, we know this from psychology and psychiatry and brainwaves and so on and so forth. I could get into all the scientific stuff here, but, but let's just suffice it to say that uh, Robert uh, McNally that wrote an article called What is Mental Illness, published by Harvard, Harvard University Press a couple of years ago. He's the uh, head of the psychology department at Harvard. It's no Arizona State, but it's okay. And he uh, wrote this article about mental illness, and he writes this. He says, mental illnesses are diseases of the brain. Here's what this means. 
If you're struggling with clinical depression or anxiety, it's not sin. Don't let anybody tell you. Yes, fear and worry, those are sinful behaviors, but if you are struggling with something diagnosable and clinical, it's not sin. It's not God's punishment of you. It's a disease of the brain. And there's all kinds of different factors that contribute. There are genetic factors. Research shows that those who have parents that have struggled with mental illness are more prone to or susceptible to it. There are biological factors like the chemicals in your brain. And I could talk about the prefrontal cortex. I could talk about the, all kinds of different things that happen in the brain when people are struggling with mental illness or when a mental illness begins to take over, like chemical imbalances and those types of things. But there are biological things that happen and there are circumstantial things that happen. You may have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. Order. When you go through trauma, when you go through difficulty, that can trigger something or even cause something in your life that becomes a clinical, diagnosable mental illness. If you want to know more about that, I, I don't usually recommend books from the platform, but I am going to today because there's a book called When Life Goes Dark by Richard Winter. It's very easy to read, and it's one of the most brilliant books out there on mental illness. Richard Winter is a Christian. He's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and he's had his own struggle with mental health. If you want to understand how mental illness works, pick up this book. But suffice it to say for our purposes today that mental illness is illness. It's not sin. So, so here's the thing. Jesus' disciples got confused about illness on a pretty regular basis. When people were struggling with physical things, physical ailments, they got confused, especially as to the root cause of what those things were. And they made really stupid assumptions about, well, ah, really stupid. I don't want to be hard on the disciples. They made assumptions, right? They made assumptions. And Jesus wanted to correct their assumptions. Here, here's one of them. It happens in the book of Luke. It says that when Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, guy's struggling with something physical. He's struggling with an ailment, okay? He's blind. And his, disciple asked, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? What's the assumption here? Somebody did something wrong, and this guy's getting punished for it. So who was it? Was it him or was it his parents? Which I don't know. How do you loop parents into this deal? Come on, man. Anyway, beside the point, this man or his parents that he was born blind, Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. We're going to get to the second half in a minute. It's not that this man sinned or his parents. So if you're struggling with a clinical illness, a mental illness, please understand, this is not like I did something and God is punishing me with this physical thing. So why is it that you're dealing with it? Well, it's so that the works of God might, display, might be displayed in you just as they would be displayed in the blind man several verses later when Jesus healed him. In other words, if we take this principle from the book of John, sorry, book of John chapter 9, we can learn that God can be glorified even in the midst of your despair. God can be glorified even in your despair, even in your difficulty, even in your challenge. And we've got examples all over of, of how this works and what happens. Paul talks about it this way. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, persecuted, or perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so hurting, aching, so that, why, the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, I love this, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I love what Paul says here because he gives me a picture, right? He gives me a metaphor, and that helps me. Metaphors help me. See, in first century Palestine, they didn't have like electricity, you like flick on a light and you know, all that stuff, and you know that already. So they had lamps, and lamps were made of clay, and they were clay jars, but lamps would have natural cracks and breaks and things in them so that when you put a candle inside that lamp, the light of the candle shone through that lamp on all sides and provided light for the rest of the house. See, if those uh, jars, those alabaster jars of clay did not have any breaks or cracks in them, you put a lamp inside, you put a lid on top, and what happens? Nothing, right? It doesn't work. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God's light shines brightest through cracks. When you start to own the cracks in your own life and the brokenness in your own life, whether it's sin or whether it's the things that just bog you down, whether it's a a mental illness, God can shine brightly, brightly through those areas in your life. We'll go back to Martin Luther. Talk about Martin Luther, the great reformer. In the midst of his depression, in the midst of his dark night of the soul, he began to meditate on the Psalms. He says, God is our, Psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Martin Luther began to take that filter of the Psalms and place it over the top of his despair and depression, knowing that even in the darkness, God is with me. Even when I can't see the light, God is with me. I don't have to be afraid. God is with me. And then he sat down and wrote these words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amidst the flood. How many of you know that song? Yeah, it came directly out of Luther's own battles with his depression. See, God's light shone brightest through his cracks. And he can with yours. He can with yours. Once we own it, once we understand that God can be glorified in it, we we need to start to attack it. We need to get after it. We need to start to do some things in our life that would help us journey towards healing and wholeness. I'm going to give you four things that I did, both recommended by doctors and backed up by Scripture. I'm going to go pretty quickly here in terms of the biblical references, but understand that these are things that are backed up by Scripture to help me journey towards healing and wholeness. And I I want you to know that this whole kind of journey towards healing when it comes to mental illness is not like a one-off thing. I want you to know that like I'm still on medication even now, and it's very much not a happy pill. Like, you don't take it and go, whoa, (laughs) I feel good. I'm going to ride a horse today. Like, I've never ridden a horse. That's not how that works, right? That is absolutely not how that works. There's a bunch of things that you've got to do in some life habits and behaviors. Medication may be one of them for you. Therapy could be one of them for you. All kinds of other things, but one of them is get moving, Get moving. Get your body in gear physically. The Bible says the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and some of you treat it like a tent, okay? So we need to kind of engage, whether it's dietary habits or whether it's getting out for a good walk and those kinds of things. It helps with endorphins and serotonin level and all that kinds of things, all those kinds of things. And it's one building block 
in your journey towards healing. Number one. Number two, establish rhythm in your life. When I was uh, in kind of the depths of my depression, I had absolutely no rhythm. My bedtime changed all the time. My eating habits changed all the time. Like every three days, I would eat a meal with like 19,000 calories and then not eat for three days, right? Or, or I'd go to bed at 6 a.m. one day and 6 p.m. the next day. I mean, all over the place. So establish rhythm in your life. That's why God gave us a Sabbath, six days of working, one, days of, one day of rest. So we have a little bit of a rhythm where the sun sets and the sun rises. We've got a little bit of a rhythm. Let that rhythm start to govern your life a little bit. Uh, third is get a hobby. Get a hobby. Golf, gym, building model airplanes, whatever it is. Spurgeon, Spurgeon, who called depression the black dog of ministry. <laughs> Felt ever pursued, ever pursued by this black dog of ministry. Spurgeon's hobby to help with his depression was this. Look what he wrote. He said, I have found intense pain relieved, a weary brain soothed, and calm, refreshing sleep obtained by a <laughs> cigar. Now, don't walk away and say, Pastor Lucas told me I should start smoking cigars, okay, first of all. Second is Amy won't even let me, okay, so, so I can't, it's not me either, but that's just Spurgeon, okay, so get a hobby, get a hobby, something that gives you joy, something that you can engage in that kind of takes your mind off of things a little bit. Finally, see a doctor, see a doctor. God gave us really, really great medical professionals. In fact, if you go to your GP, your GP can recommend a psychiatrist for you, and you can go to the psychiatrist for free. And I say free because they're taking like 80% of your paycheck. You've already paid for it, okay? It's like, oh, yeah, okay? You've already paid for it. It's not free, right? Or it's not free, it's free, okay? But you can go to a psychiatrist and see a doc and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm going through. And they can ask you some questions to help you determine, is this kind of just a situational depression or is there something really clinical going on here? Those are four things that I did that really helped me. I would encourage you to do the same, except the cigar part. Okay, then talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. you got to tell somebody. I know it's hard. I know it takes courage. I know it's fearful or something that could cause fear in your life. But if we look at the early church, here's what they did together. Look, they, day by day, they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. I love that language in the original. My former pastor, uh, Jamie, pointed this out to me one time because, you know, generous just sounds like, well, they were giving of their time and giving of their money and they invited people into their homes. He said, yeah, that was all true. We know from the rest of Scripture. But sometimes some translations will translate translate this word, sincere hearts. And really the original Greek word there is unfolded. Unfolded hearts. There were no folds where they could hide things from one another. They were open with one another. I went to uh, bed last night, started pulling back some of the folds in my sheets and in my comforter and found bits and pieces of pumpkin bread. That little girl that you met left pumpkin bread in the folds of my sheets, which was a tasty bedtime snack for me, right? I loved it, right? Also, also, you can hide things in folds. What Paul is saying, or what Luke is saying here, is that the early church unfolded their hearts. You got to talk to somebody. You got to tell somebody how you're feeling. Finally, think on Jesus. Think on Jesus. Now, for those of you who have never struggled with a, a mental illness, who have never struggled with clinical depression, I just want to be straight with you and tell you that uh, there are moments when it is impossible, if you have a mental illness, to control your thoughts. 
Something else takes control. That physiological thing in your life takes control. It's very, very difficult. So the whole like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, feel better, all that stuff, that just, that just doesn't work. Physiologically, it doesn't work. Again, it's like if, you, if you've got an amputated leg and somebody's like, well, just will yourself to grow a leg back. Like I'm not a lizard. That, that does, that's what happens, right? Like in the same way with mental illness, that's not what happens. However, I will tell you, if you have a mental illness, be honest with me, because I've done the same thing. Sometimes we like to wallow in it, don't we? Sometimes we don't want to admit it. Sometimes we don't want to take steps to get out of it. Sometimes uh, that depression and anxiety becomes our bedfellow. And and, and we become, as a friend of mine would say, we get a codependent relationship with our own dysfunctionality. with our own brokenness. And Paul would come along in in Philippians 4, and he says, no, 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 no. Don't let your mind stay in those unhealthy places. Work hard to discipline your thoughts. And so whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, of anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Focus your mind on the truth about God. Focus your heart on his goodness. Focus your, focus your thoughts on anything excellent and honorable and pure. And fight to get yourself out of that unhealthy space. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. It's one of many things that will contribute to wholeness and healing when we begin to think on Jesus. Think on Jesus. Here's the last thing I want to tell you, and we'll be done is receive prayer. Receive prayer. I've, I've worded this really specifically today. I didn't say pray. I said receive prayer. Allow someone else in the body of Christ to pray for you. Why? Because James wrote this. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And we've just established that mental illness is illness. If you're sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I will tell you that there are people in the room, I, I am one of them. There are times you go before the Lord and you're struggling with a mental illness and it's so deep, it's so intense, it's so oppressive and dark, you're not even sure how to pray. You ever felt that way? Like, I'm not even sure, I, I can't even. And that's when the body of Christ comes alongside you, puts her hand on your shoulder and say, I'll do it. I'll pray for you. You don't have to know. You don't have to have the words. I'll do it. I'll pray for you. So we would invite you this morning to receive prayer. As we conclude today, we're going to do two things. One is the band is going to come up, and you guys can kind of start making your way up even now if you want to. And they're going to lead us in singing a song called Tremble. I absolutely love the chorus of this song because it says, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. You make the darkness tremble. And there are so many folks who have struggled with clinical depression from all different walks of life that have described depression and mental illness, depression specifically and mental illness in general, as a darkness, a darkness. And we see darkness in our world and darkness in our culture, but the reality is some of us are living in a unique type of darkness. And Jesus can make even that darkness tremble. So we're going to declare that together.
After that song, I'm going to come up and dismiss everybody. And when I do, we're going to have a bunch of prayer partners down here in the front. Some of them are elders. Lots of them just uh, people who love this church and have been around a long time and love to pray. And any one of you who would say, today is going to be my catalyst. Today is going to be my first step in that journey. Today I'm going to receive prayer for what I'm going through. We would invite you down here to receive prayer. Some of you maybe are like me and, and you're kind of down this road, but you could always use just a little more prayer. Don't, can't, can't we all really? And so these prayer partners are here for you. And so after the song, I'll dismiss everybody just kind of in quiet. And we'll have some prayer partners down here in the front. Before we sing, let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us, and thank you that we can count on you, that we can trust in you, that you're always there for us, that you understand that you've given us the body so that we're not alone. You've given us the scripture, and we know that there are those, even not just in your Bible, but who wrote your Bible, that struggled deeply with the dark night of the soul. God, I pray fervently passionately, I beg of you that if there is somebody in this room that's struggling with a mental illness today, that today would be their day that they stand and come forward to receive prayer. Guys, these prayer partners will follow up with you. We've got contact cards. We can connect you maybe into the next step, but today we just want to, we want to pray for you and then help you find that next step. I just exhort you in the name of God to be courageous today and receive prayer. God, for the rest of us who may not totally get what mental illness feels like or, or what it does to minds and hearts and relationships, God, give us more grace for those among us who are suffering. And most of all, God, help us remember that one day you will make all things new and the darkness will not just tremble, but it'll scram and be gone for good. Christ's name, the people of God, together said, amen. Let's stand together as we declare this truth.